All right, if you'll start making your way back to your seats. If you'll start making your way back to your seats, and as you do, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. <clears throat> to Acts <clears throat> chapter 6, and again, I want to welcome you if you're, you're visiting with us this morning. My name is Michael Matala. I'm uh, privileged to serve as the lead pastor here uh, at Newbreed Church, and if you're just jumping in with us this week, we're in the midst of a series a series that we started at the beginning of the year, a series that's entitled, uh, This is the Church. This is the Church. And we're basically just taking a few weeks to, to walk through what it is that makes a church a church. How, how does its leadership function? Uh, what are the responsibilities of the people of God? And so we've been walking through it. We've got a, a few weeks left in this series. Um, but, but, but it's been good. And so this morning, we want to turn our attention to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7, and we're going to be considering, <clears throat> considering the role of a deacon in a church. And so I want to invite you, I know you just sat down, but to stand out of reverence for God's Word as we read Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 7. And Luke writes this, he says, in those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and wisdom whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now this proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed, and they laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we explore your word, God, I pray that your spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that you will give me in physical, spiritual strength to preach your word to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. And I want us... I want us this morning to consider this idea of deacons, the servants of the church. Deacons, the servants of the church. You know, there's a, there's a story that I've heard told in different churches. It's probably not true, but it makes for a funny story. It's a story of a little girl who was, leading, or who was eating lunch with her family after Sunday morning service. So they, they went to church, went home eating together as a family, and after the parents had finished talking a little bit about the sermon and the people they ran into and what they learned that was going on in other people's lives, they, they turned to their daughter and they asked their daughter, sweetie, how, how was kids' church? And the daughter responding like most kids, it was fine. Now wanting a little bit more discussion, the dad asked, well, well what did you talk about? And the little daughter, without 
looking up from her plate, said, Oh, we learned about Jesus walking on water and casting out the deacons. I'm glad that hit. You see, often deacons, they get a bad rap in the church. It's been somewhat commonplace to hear pastors of churches rag on their deacons. Uh, they talk of them as if they're the reason that ministry is so hard. And, and they talk about them as if they're the reason that progress uh, is stifled in the church. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that deacons can't cause problems. I've, I've known a few who could. A lot of times these problems arise when deacons are basically functioning as pastors, but they're called deacons and no one knows what anybody's supposed to be doing. But, but my fear... My fear is that this constant joking and, and perhaps even the, the unsurety about the role of a deacon, I'm afraid that we lose sight of the beautiful gift that deacons are to the church, right? right? God, God wanted us to know about deacons in the church. That's why Acts 6 is in the Bible. That's why other passages, 1 Timothy 3, are in the Bible. Deacons are a gift that are given to the church. Even in our church constitution, while speaking of the church structure, we say that the church is Jesus Christ ruled. We talked about that a few weeks ago. We talked about how it's elder-led. We spent a couple weeks talking about the role and qualifications of an elder. And the next thing our constitution says is that the church is deacon-served. And the first line in our constitution that follows deacons served is this. Deacons are those within the body that are appointed to serve the body. Deacons are extremely important. And now you might be thinking, well, Michael, if that's the case, why don't we have any right now? That's a great question. You're right. But that ultimately brings us to why we're talking about that this morning. See, here, here's my hope with this sermon. First, my hope is that after our time this morning, you will have a, a better understanding of the beauty and the necessity of deacons in the body. But second, I hope that this conversation this morning will help us as a body to perhaps identify and establish deacons and deaconesses in this church. You know, there are a few reasons why we decided to start this year with this series on, on This is the Church. There are a few reasons, but one of them is that we as leaders knew how desperately we needed to add not only elders to the church, but also deacons. And so as a result of that, we understood that we needed to teach through some of these things so that the church had a better understanding of, of, of what, what an elder is and what, what a deacon is, because it's ultimately up to you to affirm these people and to call them out to serve. And so this text pushes us to think about deacons. And so in the text that we just read, we have what many, myself included, see as the establishment of the first deacons in this newly formed church. So what I want to do this morning is I want to walk through this text, highlight a little bit about the, the context, the situation, what's going on. And as we do, I'm hoping to, to still offer some lessons along the way that are useful for all of us. I know, I know it's, it's tough when you're teaching, teaching on specific roles because not everybody will be in those roles. So, so I'm hoping to still to be able to, to, to offer up some lessons that you can glean from as we talk about this topic of deacons. So let me, let me set the scene a little bit in regards to Acts chapter 6. So this, this event takes place towards the beginning of the book of Acts. I mean, Acts 6, towards the beginning, Acts is a long book. And we have to remember that by and large, the church is brand new. 
I mean, this, this is a brand new thing. In Acts chapter 1, you'll remember that Jesus ascends into heaven and the disciples are left waiting. And they're waiting for the promised Holy Spirit to descend. So, so they go together to the upper room. The disciples, there are some, some women there, including Jesus' mother, Mary. And they're praying and they're waiting. And then Acts chapter 2 happens. And in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost occurs. And this is when the Spirit of God descends on the followers of Jesus. Now, just to be clear, it descends on more than just the 12 disciples. Right? Acts 2.5 tells us that now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. And we see in Acts chapter 2 that the Spirit fell on all of these devout people. The Spirit falls on a diverse group of people. And so then Peter begins preaching at the end of Acts chapter 2, and thousands were added to the church. Like, I mean, as a side note, like, I, w- I want to preach a sermon, and thousands join the church. I don't know that the Lord's called me to that. But this original church plant, the, the establishment of the church, it was the fastest growing church in history. And now what, what might be overlooked is that as the original church is starting... We can't forget about this. Nobody had time to sit down and write out a constitution. No one was able to map out what this thing should look like, what the church should be. They, they were busy, and we see that in Acts chapters 3 through 5. There's a lot going on in this early church. Miracles are happening. Healings are happening. John and Peter are getting arrested, and they're proclaiming with boldness to those who, who arrested them you got Ananias and Sapphira who are caught lying, and the Lord takes their life as a result. There are many signs, more wonders. The apostles are getting arrested some more. And while all this is happening, the church is growing. But make no mistake about it. Church growth does not mean the absence of problems. I need to be reminded of that. You need to be reminded of that. Just because good things are happening in the church, it doesn't mean that there aren't problems that need to be addressed. Growth and hardship can coexist. In fact, it's often hardship that's the fertile soil for potential growth. And we see this very thing in Acts chapter 6. So let me, let me start and let me point this out first. Let me point out the situation that's going on. We see it there in verse 1. We see the situation. Verse 1 says, in those days as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. So, so, so let me explain what's going on here. We already mentioned that when the Spirit came in Acts chapter 2, there was a diverse group of people present in the church, both Jews and Gentiles. Acts 2 tells us all about the people represented beginning in verse 9. It says, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, and Cappadocia, and Pontus, and Asia, and Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. So at the very beginning of this thing, the church was beautifully diverse. But here in Acts 6, there's a, dif- there's a disagreement among the different types of Jews. And this disagreement is ultimately centered, centered around ethnicity. It's centered around the Hellenistic Jews 
and the Hebraic Jews. So, so who are these two groups? Well, the Hellenistic Jews were Jews who had returned to Jerusalem, but they were originally abroad. Right, so, so, so they weren't in Jerusalem. That's not where they lived. That wasn't their home. They were in kind of these Greek provinces, still Jews, but they, they were Hellenistic Jews. They were Jews who likely did not speak any Aramaic. They'd been involved in Greek culture for so long that they'd lost a lot of their Jewish traditions. But then you have the Hebraic Jews, and these were the, the Jews who originally resided in, or in Israel, in Jerusalem specifically. They were more familiar with the Jewish traditions. They spoke and read Aramaic. And so the problem comes because discrimination was common. Those who were Hebraic Jews saw themselves as better and superior to the Hellenistic Jews. Why? Because they saw themselves as pure. Whereas the Hellenistic Jews had been tainted by Greek culture. But here's where it gets even more interesting. On top of that, the Hellenistic Jews in the early church were the minority. The Hebraic Jews were the majority culture. So, so trying to paint a picture here for you, right? So tell me if this doesn't sound somewhat familiar to you. The church was made up of a diverse group of individuals, but those who held the majority culture discriminated against, and according to the complaint in Acts 6, ignored the needs of the minority while acting constantly in preference to the majority. When the Bible tells us there's nothing new under the sun, there's nothing new under the sun. And so this issue, in this case, was centered around the distribution of food. Now, we have to remember how Acts chapter 2 ends. Again, we're still kind of setting the stage, painting a picture of the situation. At the end of Acts chapter 2, there's this beautiful picture of the church in Acts 2 verses 42 through 44. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. That's an important line. All the believers were together and they held all things in common. What that means is they shared everything. So in Acts chapter 2, you have the body of Christ, and they were functioning like the body of Christ. But now in Acts 6, it doesn't take long for old patterns of sin to creep back up in this newly established church. And while the church saw it rightly as their responsibility to care for the marginalized, and in this case, the widows, prejudice began to can't come to the surface again. Now, let's just pause here because there's a lesson here for us. Let's just pause, and we got to talk a little bit about sin and salvation for a minute. One of the truths that this text forces us to reckon with is the fact that when you are saved, all of your sin does not automatically go away. It doesn't go away. You know this to be true in your own life, just like I do. Some of you, before the Lord saved you, you were struggling with alcohol. And now that you are saved, you're still struggling with alcohol. Some of you, before the Lord saved you, you were deep in lust. And now that you are saved, you may not be as deep in lust by God's grace, but you're still wrestling. Some of you, before the Lord saved you, you were talking about everyone and their mother behind their back. And now, now that you are saved, you just switched up who you're talking about and how you talk about them. Because now it's a prayer request. It's not a text. 
And listen, I'm not saying this to try to make light of sin. We should be growing in these areas as the Lord sanctifies you by the power of the Spirit. But what I am trying to say is that because you got saved, just because somebody else got saved, it doesn't mean that all the struggle with sin just disappears. We will wrestle and sanctification takes time. Now here's the thing. If you know this to be true in your own lives, I'm glad so many of you said amen. When I said that just because you got saved, it doesn't mean that your sin stops. I'm I'm glad you did, because if you know this to be true in your own lives, the question that we have to ask then is, why do we expect it to be different in the lives of those around us? Let me just, like, I got a soapbox. I'm going to get on it for me. That's why cancel culture is so dangerous for the church. Like, the church has to be on guard about the ways the world is dealing with issues, about adopting those as the way that we deal with issues. I'll call it what it it is, And, and... we're streaming you do the most sinful vile racist person doesn't necessarily need to lose their job and not have an income right the person wrestling with sin doesn't need to be cut off from the rest of the world praise god that he didn't do that to you because there is no sin that any person can commit against another sin that is greater than the sin and the offense that we committed against god and yet he still was patient and kind and that patience and kindness led us to repentance Like, we got to get rid of this cancel culture in the church. Some of us are so patient when it comes to our own sin. But the moment someone around us struggles, and let's call it what it is, they can be struggling with the same thing we struggle with. But when it's someone else's sin, we have no patience. And so the people in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 6, they may have been saved by the grace of God, but they were wrestling with some old habits. It was having a negative effect on the church. So this was, this was the situation. But now let's, let's turn our attention for just a moment to the result. To the result. We see that in, in verse 2. What's the result of this situation? Well, we read that the twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. So the result is this. It appears that the complaint made its way back to the 12 apostles. Now, we, we have to understand this in its context. I think we can read this and misunderstand what the apostles are saying. Because often people hear this statement by the apostles and they read it as if the apostles were annoyed that this was brought to them, right? With this air, with this air of arrogance, right? Why would you bring this to us? Should we be the ones waiting on tables? I, I don't think that's what's going on here, right? It, it's not as if they're saying this is beneath us. Figure it out for yourselves. Because what we have to understand is that this conversation, to some degree, is a result of a growing church and the need for servants or deacons in the church. We have to remember that in some way the apostles were the ones who were involved in distributing the food. Or they were at least overseeing it. And you go, well, how do you know that, Michael? Well, because of what takes place in Acts chapter 4. So two chapters before this, in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35, it says, Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But instead, they held everything in common. Now listen to this. It says, With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them. Why? Because all those who owned lands or houses sold them 
and they brought the proceeds of what was sold and they laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as they had need. So where did they get the resources to distribute food, to give to the widows, right? The ones even who are being rejected. Well, it's because people were so bought into this church, to this family, to this people of God, that they were selling their possessions. And where were they taking it? They were giving it to the apostles. And they're saying, do with this as you need to serve this this church, this newly formed people of God. And so the apostles, we don't know if they were the ones actively distributing it, right? Like 12 of them in between sermons are like running around distributing food, maybe, Or we don't know if maybe they were just overseeing it, but they were aware in some way, shape, or form that the task could no longer be faithfully fulfilled by them. It's one thing when you got a small handful of people and you got 12 guys overseeing it. It's another thing when thousands are being added and you're still just 12 guys trying to oversee this thing. And so, so they understood that it couldn't be faithfully fulfilled by them. They understood that, and they understood what needed to take priority in their life. So they say to the people, listen, it wouldn't be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Now, again, a couple of things to note. First, they were not trying to diminish the work. In fact, they saw it as ministry. This statement, wait on tables, would actually be better translated from the original language to be minister at tables. It's not our job to minister at tables. They were not trying to diminish the work. They understood it was real ministry, and it was a ministry that was significant to the church. It just wasn't their ministry. So, second, they recognized what they were called to do. This is the apostles here, right? The apostles knew that God had called them to fulfill a specific task. The task was to grow the church by proclaiming the gospel and to strengthen the church by preaching God's word to God's people. And this necessitated time in the word, the Old Testament, right? They're diving into the Old Testament, looking for Jesus, teaching this stuff. And they're spending time in prayer. But third, and this is important, not only did they recognize what they were called to, they recognize their limits. Now, this is such an important truth, and, and, and bear with me, because maybe I'm just preaching to me and Pastor Lance, and that's okay. I'm going to preach to us on this, bro. But they recognize their limits. The apostles, though uniquely gifted by God, called to serve and given apostolic authority. That's not us, by the way. We're not apostles. But with all they had, they were not God. And they had to recognize their limits. You know, Peter Scazzaro in his book, The Emotionally Healthy Leader, pushes Christians to remember the truth that we have limits. When he writes this, he says, as human beings, we are creatures who must routinely face up to any host of limits, some mild, some extreme. And it was with this in mind that theologian Reinhold Niebuhr described the very nature of sin as this. Listen, this is how this theologian describes sin. The desire to overcome our limitations and finitude because of anxiety about our creaturely existence. He goes on, he says, and Christian leaders today continue to do this all the time. For some reason, we find it impossibly difficult to wait, listen, and honor our limits. And this last line got me. He says, it is perhaps one of the greatest and yet, it is one of the greatest and yet most subtle ways we rebel against God. One of the greatest ways that we rebel against God is when we fail to recognize that we are not God. We have limits. That's true for me as a pastor. That's true for you as a church member. God did not design us to do everything. 
God does not expect us to do everything, but God does expect you to be faithful to what he has called you to. And the apostles had to recognize that they were not God. They were not Jesus. They had to know what was their role and what was not. But we can't miss this because this is why it's so beautiful. In recognizing their limits, it allowed an opportunity for others to step into service. There's a lesson for, for us in that as well. Like the apostles, like the apostles, every one of us has to know our role. And that begins by just acknowledging that you have a role in this church. You have a role to play in the life of this church. Here it is. Let me just say it. Christianity is not a spectator sport. The church is not a country club. Listen, I, I love going to sporting events. I do, specifically basketball games. Um, I like to look at the people out on the court and marvel at their gifting. Because here's the thing, I, I can't do what they do. Now, you catch me on the court, I'm going to think I can for a minute. But I know, honestly, that I can't do what they do. There's a time where I could jump up and put my hand over the rim and put the ball in. Those days have long passed. I can hit the net. But it's amazing for me to watch what they do because they do what I can't. They put on a great show. I love going to basketball games. Everyone out there has an incredible role to play, whether they're the trainers, the coaches, the players, but everyone out on that court has a role to play. But do you know what I do when I go to games? I sit in the stands. Every once in a while, I'll stand up and cheer and yell and get excited, but then I get tired, so I sit back down, I finish my nachos, and I lick the cheese off my fingers. That's what I do. And then you know what I'm going to do after that? I'm going to go home. They won't know that I was there. They won't know I had cheesy hands in their stands. My presence made no difference to them and what they were doing. And that's exactly how I want it to be at a basketball game. The problem is, that's how some of us want it to be at church. We want to sit back. We might stand up and cheer and yell and get a little excited. We're going to get tired. We're going to sit back down. I've not seen anybody eat nachos, so we'll go with the nice coffee that we have here. We want to drink our coffee be entertained, and go home. That's what, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. But let me tell you this, that when God calls you out of darkness and into light, when God takes dry bones and gives them life, when God draws you into his family, the church, he does so, and he gives you a job to do. We are called, you've heard me say it so many times, we are called not just to be saved. We are also called to serve. We are called to be on the court and not in the stands. And the church needs for its members, that's you, to understand that you have a role to play. Paul says it like this in Romans 12, verses 3 through 5. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should. Instead... Think sensibly as God, listen to this, as God, he's so good. He has distributed a measure of faith to each one of you. Now, as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We are members of one another. I mean, think about it. No body is considered healthy when parts of that body aren't working. I don't care how minuscule it is. Right now, let your toes stop, stop working. 
You're not going to see yourself as healthy. You're going to go to the doctor. You're going to figure this out. Even what can be some of the smallest and most minuscule parts of the body, when they stop working, the body's not healthy. And likewise, the church cannot be healthy if its members don't understand that they have a role to play. But let's go a little deeper in this. We don't all have the same role. I think this gets lost on some folks. Listen, I'm just going to say it as your pastor. Even us, your pastors, we are not experts in all aspects of service. We are not. I know that God has gifted me to do some specific things for this body. And I know it's a gifting from God. I know it is. Y'all have heard me tell tell this story, but I like it, so I'm going to tell it again. My wife once told me that my preaching skills was like my basketball skills. Surprisingly good when you look at me. I don't know whether that's an insult, but she said it, and now her head's down. She's turning red. But the truth is, I'm okay with that because I know it's not me. God has gifted me to serve you in a particular way. He's not gifted me to do all things, though, and and I'm humble enough to admit that. There are things in this church that you are better equipped to do than I am. There are things that the Lord has gifted you to do that he may not have gifted anyone else in the church for. And what that means is that if you are not using your gift, the body is lacking in a particular area. And just to be clear, if God has gifted you and no one else in this body like you, that means that no one else can faithfully pick up your slack. Unless God gives them a new gifting. And he can't, and the Lord often will. But it doesn't change the fact that you have to reckon with your faithfulness and your accountability before God. I mean to go in like this. It's just happening. But the result here, right, was that the apostles had to reckon with the fact that there was more ministry than they could accomplish on their own. Praise God. And there was more ministry that God intended beyond just them preaching the word. And so this leads to the third part of the narrative that I want you to see. Third and final point. I want you to, to notice the solution. The solution. And we see the solution in verses 3 through 6. It says, Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, who we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And this proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. And they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So here's the solution. What we have here is the apostles establishing deacons in the church. I told you we were going to get to deacons. It just took us a minute, but we're here now. The apostles, rather, I love this, rather than trying to be the solution to the problem, they made the people the solution to the problem. Now think about that. They, they made the people who were committing the offense the solution to the problem. To the problem. They made the people who brought the, the charge against the Hebraic Jews the solution to the problem. So, so let's get into it a little bit here. And what we have to answer here at the beginning of this point, and it'll help us understand this solution, is we have to just understand what is a deacon in the first place. And, and so let me, let me offer you kind of the definition that I'm going to be working with that I, I kind of crafted. It's, it's, it's this, that a deacon is a person of spiritual matur- maturity. 
who is appointed to, to meet a specific need of a local church. A deacon is a person of spiritual maturity who is appointed to meet a specific need of a local church. Now, you, you know me. I like to break things down. So let's break it down a little bit. So first, a deacon is a person. A person. I'm just going to jump in and tell you, we at Newbreed Church believe that the Bible allows for anyone in the church, regardless of gender, who meets the spiritual qualifications and is gifted in the area of need to be a deacon or a deaconess. And, and I know that this is a topic that some would disagree on. So let me just briefly explain. I'm not going to get too far into it. There's a lot more. But let me just briefly explain, explain to you where this understanding comes from for us. There are two places I would mention. Again, there's, there's more than two evidences of women deacons or deaconesses in the Bible. But let me give you two. The first is Romans 16.1 where I believe that Phoebe is identified as a deaconess. So Paul is writing, and he says this in Romans 16, verse 1. He says, I commend to you our sister who is a servant of the church of Kinsharia. The word that is translated as servant is the word from which we get deacon. It's diakonos. A deacon is literally a servant. It's built into the title. Now, even as I was reviewing for this sermon, the Lord, the Lord's always trying to, to get you to think through. So, so I'm reviewing this sermon. I've already written this stuff down. And yesterday I read a tweet by somebody that challenged this passage of Scripture as evidence for women deacons. And this is what his argument said. He said, don't fall for the argument that Phoebe held the office of deacon because Paul calls her a diakonos in Romans 16.1. He says in the immediate context, Romans 15 verse 8, Paul calls Jesus a diakonos. The word simply means service, and it's not necessarily the church office. So the heart of his argument is that, is that not everywhere in Scripture does the word diakonos, which we translate as servant, indicate that the person is deacon, a deacon. I'd agree with him on that. There are tons of places in the Bible where the word servant is used, and it just means servant. It doesn't mean the office or the role of a deacon or deaconess. But his argument misses a very important point. Now, I'm not even going to address the bad exegesis of thinking that Romans 15.8 is the immediate context of Romans 16.1. Uh, but he is right in saying that the word literally means servant. But what indicates to us that Phoebe is a deaconess is actually the end of verse 1, where he says, of the church of Kincheria. And so what Paul is doing is he's identifying the place where she fulfills this specific role. Thus, it's more likely that Paul is telling the place where she serves in this role rather than just saying she's a, sh a servant who happens to go to this church, right? Especially considering he doesn't mention any other churches in the people that he commends to the Romans in verses 1 through 16. There's a lot of people listed. He doesn't mention any of their churches. So, so I believe he's saying that she fulfilled this role at this specific location. She was a deaconess. But there's a second reason that I could give that why we believe that females can hold the office of deacon. And it actually comes in the qualifications listed in 1 Timothy 3, verses 18 through 13. And so, so that passage reads like this. It says, deacons likewise should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must also be tested first, and if they prove blameless... Then they can serve as deacons. Wives, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. Deacons are to be the husbands of one wife, managing their children and their own households confidently. For those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith 
that is in Christ Jesus. Now, what's interesting in those qualifications is actually verse 11. So 1 Timothy 3.11, it says, Wives likewise should be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. Now, if you have an ESV Bible that you're reading from, your translation says, their wives. And so let me deal with the ESV first. In the Greek, there is no determiner there in the original language, meaning that that word there isn't there. So where ESV translated sits, their wives, we can call it what it is. The translators of the ESV at this moment were trying to make a point they weren't translating the text. All right, and so when they say their wives, that word there is nowhere in the Greek. There is no determiner. So the CSB, what we read from, gets it a little bit closer when it says, it takes out the word there, but what's interesting is that the same word for wives in the Greek is the exact same word for women. So you could read this as, and I believe the better way to read this would be women, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful, and everything. And I believe that this indicates that there are qualifications for women because women can be deaconesses. It wouldn't make sense to give qualifications, even if it is wives, it wouldn't make sense to give qualifications for them unless they can fulfill the role. Because remember, earlier in the chapter, when they were giving the qualifications for an elder, nothing is mentioned about a woman's qualification. The reason being that the role of elders, we talked about in that sermon, you can go back and review it, we believe is reserved for men. But here, qualifications are directed at women, indicating that women can fulfill the role. So, so again, there are, there are more reasons, and you can talk to me about them if you want, but we at Newbury believe that the role of deacon can be fulfilled by any person regardless of gender. So we've got to move on. So let's look at the, the rest of this definition. So a deacon is a person of spiritual maturity. Now, notice what the apostles say in Acts 6, verse 3. It says, brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. <clears throat> Paul, goes into, Paul, Paul goes into a little bit more detail in regards to the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13, what we just read. But at the heart of the qualifications, I'm not going to go through them like we did for the elders, at the heart of the qualifications is spiritual maturity. Walking in the Spirit. Godly men and women who have been tested. Again, I'm not going to walk through those qualifications like we did with elders, but let me share with you a helpful explanation of what, what Luke is getting at in Acts chapter 6 when he says that these are people have filled with the Spirit. G. Campbell Morgan says it like this. He says, A man full of the Spirit is one who is living a normal Christian life. Fullness of the Spirit, listen to this, is not a state of spiritual aristocracy to which a few can attain. Anything less than the fullness of the Spirit for the Christian man is disease of the spiritual life, a low ebb of vitality. Here, here's what I want you to hear. He says, fullness of the Spirit is not abnormal, but the Christian life. And so in other words, what the apostles are saying is call out people who are faithful Christians who are walking with the Spirit, who have given evidence that they're faithful Christians. Deacons and deaconesses must have a track record of walking with God. They must have very clear evidence of the Spirit of God within them. One way to evaluate whether there's evidence, to look for evidence, is to just look, are they already serving? 
oftentimes deacons, you're not telling them to do a task they weren't already doing. You're recognizing them for the task they're doing and saying this is a significant part of the church and we want to give honor where honor is due. We want to be for you and hold you accountable. And so we are going to set you apart as deacon and deaconesses in this role. This leads to the last part of our definition regarding deacons and deaconesses. A deacon is a person of spiritual maturity who is appointed to meet a specific need of a local church. Deacons are servants. It's literally what the word means. This is not an office of authority. These are servants of the church. Some people are like, man, I wish they had the authority. I don't know. I think scripture puts a pretty high value on servants. Jesus was the suffering servant. Deacons are servants. A deacon's function is to serve. And so as we see in our text, they aren't appointed arbitrarily. It's to meet a need in the church. Look again at verse 3, Acts 6, verse 3. It says, Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, here it is, whom we can appoint to this duty, the specific duty of overseeing the distribution to make sure the Hellenistic Jews weren't being discriminated against by the Hebraic Jews. And the best way, I mentioned this, to see who would best serve as a deacon or a deaconess is to recognize those who are already serving faithfully, who already show a gifting in a particular area that happens to be a great need for the church. And then we recognize them. Then we, we set them apart to serve in that specific area. When we appoint deacons, we will do what the apostles did and lay hands on them and pray for them and commission them to do this task for the good of the church. Now, there are two lessons in this last point that I want you to see. And I promise we're getting towards the end. Here's the first lesson for us. We have to be willing to be the solution. Please hear me say that. We have to be willing to be the solution. I, I don't want you to miss this because I think this is actually one of the most profound parts of the whole text. I know, we save the profound to the end. You're getting tired. Stick with me. I, this is the most profound part for me. Notice who they chose in verse 5. It says, the proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. Do you know what's significant about all those people? I didn't until I started studying this. They all had Greek names. They were all Hellenistic Jews. Remember what is happening here. The Hellenistic Jews, those from the Greek culture, the minority in the church, they're being overlooked by the majority culture and the Hebraic Jews. So the whole assembly, this is what's dope about it, okay? The Hellenistic Jews, the Hebraic Jews, and the Gentiles all come together in agreement and they choose seven Hellenistic Jews for the task. It wasn't an accident. The Spirit was moving. I love what R. Kent Hughes writes here. He says that everyone, the Greek-speaking Jews, the Aramaic-speaking Jews, everyone came together and chose the favored seven. What a beautiful event, especially considering that all those chosen had Greek names. The Hebraic Jews compromise and are the majority of the congregation, and yet they chose Hellenistic Jews to administer the program. Why? The Holy Spirit was reigning. 
We have to be willing to be the solution. It was those who felt the sting of the problem the most who were in the prime position to, church, to serve the church in that specific area of great need. And what's beautiful is the church let them. I'm just going to call it what it is, how easy it would have been for the Hellenistic Jews to say, we ain't serving y'all. Y'all forgetting about us. Why should we serve you? We're going to go start the Hellenistic church. We're done with y'all. But it was those who felt the sting the greatest who God was preparing to serve in order to meet a very real need in the church. And we, as members of the congregation, have to be willing to be the solution to whatever problem arises. Do you know what my kind of default position is when you come to me and say, I see a problem in the church? Especially if nobody else has brought it to me. Is God's probably raising you up to be the solution. Now, hear me, this doesn't mean that everyone's going to be a pastor of the church. It doesn't mean that everyone's even going to be a deacon in the church. But it does mean that every one of us must be willing to serve and sacrifice for the good of the family and the glory of God. We must be ready to identify as well those who can help serve in particular ways. It's almost as if we should be in such deep fellowship with one another that we know the church well enough to identify its areas of weakness and we also know those who can help the most in those areas. Here's the second lesson. I promise I'm coming to the end. Second lesson for us. The church needs deacons and deaconesses. Church needs them. It is a benefit to everyone. It is a benefit to pastors because it takes some of that burden off pastors from feeling like they need to do all the ministry in the church. It is a benefit to the congregation because it means that there are areas of weakness in our church that will now be strengthened by people who are set apart to serve in a particular way. And it also benefits those who will be deacons or deaconesses because it allows them to use the gifts that God has given them for the good of the body and the glory of God. But even more than that, the presence of deacons can help the church further the gospel. So as we close, let me draw your attention to the final verse Luke writes in this section. Verse 7, he says, so. So in light of everything that happened, you saw the situation, you saw the result, you saw the solution. So did it work? Well, here it is. So the word of God spread. And the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number. And a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. As a result of the church dealing with its issues and establishing deacons, they were able to continue to reach the world around me. Listen to me, please. Nothing will stifle the outward proclamation of the gospel like inward problems that no one is willing to step up and deal with. I'm going to say it again, nothing will stifle the outward proclamation of the gospel like inward problems that no one is willing to step up and deal with. But in this case, the glory of this passage is that the gospel was not hindered. The word of God spread, the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and that's what it's about. That's our mission as a church to reach the lost around us with the gospel, to see them discipled into being healthy Christians. And we know the power of the gospel because that's our story. 
We are here as members of this church because of the gospel, because we have sinned and rebelled against God. We have played God, right, forsaken him. And yet rather than destroy us, God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die on a cross in our place. He took our wrath. He took our judgment. He took our punishment on himself. And he was crucified and buried and raised from the dead three days later. And we come to him and find our place in the family of God by coming through faith and repentance. And the gospel is strong to save and to unite. That's our story. And the church, this church, is meant to proclaim that truth. And deacons, deaconesses, can help meet the needs of the body so that the gospel proclamation can continue to happen. Let's go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for your church. God, we thank you that even though the apostles might not have known what they were doing, they didn't know what this thing was going to look like, they didn't know all the struggles and the shortcomings that would come with the church, God, you did. And through your spirit, you led and directed and guided them into truth, establishing roles and offices that needed to be present. God, you, you have done so much for us. I pray that we would be reminded, God, that you love the church more than we ever could. You are for us and not against us. You want to see your church thrive. And so, God, I pray that we, your people, would be faithful. I pray right now, Lord, that you would be impressing on the hearts and minds of those in this body who you have to serve as deacons and deaconesses, that you would be preparing them, that you would be preparing all of us to see their service, to recognize and honor them, and to set them apart to do that which you have called them to do. But God, I pray that even as we do that, we would not get so inward focused that we would forget that our calling as a church is to proclaim the gospel to make disciples of all nations. Help us to be faithful. God, we thank you for Jesus, the means by which we can come and be a part of your glorious family. We thank you for his love for us, his sacrifice, and his victory so that we can have hope, God. We give you all the praise and all the glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.